Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. <laughs> My name is Mike Womer. I am the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith. So we're so glad that you are here this morning. I understand that there's, there's so many places to worship in the city of Peoria and around the area and that you've chosen here this morning. Is an, I'm honored to beat that you are here with us. So we are continuing in our series that we've been in. This is the fourth week of our series in the book of James, where we'll be going 10 weeks through this book and just breaking it down, some weeks verse by verse, other weeks concepts and ideas, and that's a little bit more of what today's message is like, and so we've been doing that. So I'd encourage you to get online and check out the first three weeks. They are all on our website at rfcpeoria.com. You can click the listen link, and you can go there. If you are an iTunes podcaster, if you search Relevant Faith Church, you'll find it there, and you can find them as that, that way as well. So I'd encourage you to check them out if you've missed any so last week, in our third week, we unpacked James chapter 1, verse 19 through 25, which was the end of James, and we, we talked about how um, God has a blueprint. We're using this model of blueprint because James is great. James is full of power and full of impact, but it's also full of practicality on, on faith and living life, and so the, even the title of this series is, is God's blueprint, God's design for faith, and so today we're going to be talking about his blueprint plan because everything's been based off of a blueprint plan. I'm saying that word, that phrase better this week. For see-through faith. See-through faith. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I'm, I'm excited about this message because it's, it's one that turns us inside out. And the reality is James is a difficult book to preach through. It's a difficult book to be preached to because there's a lot of challenge in it. James is very, very blunt in his language and how he, things he says and what he says. And so like last week, we talked about how he had a plan for, to know who we are and that who we are is far greater than just some thought about us or our personality or what we do, but who we are encompasses what's important to God and what's important to us. It encompasses who God made us to be and ultimately even where, we're, we, where we are going. And so I'd encourage you again, like I said, to check out the website. So today we're going to continue this series and launch into James chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 13 verses today, so I'm going to read them to you, and then we'll see what God has for us this morning. So this is what the Bible says in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith? You see, this is, it, I mean, James doesn't pull any punches. Second he gets started, he gets rolling through it. He says, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if, if you favor some people over others? Uh-oh. If you're sitting here, you can probably already get a sense of where we might be headed this morning. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives. So for any, just to dispel any potential thoughts, anyone who thinks that division by anything is appropriate and okay, you are already in sin according to scripture. So let's move on. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? I mean, Jesus preached it. Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So, but you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? He 
He says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor, favor some people over others, you are committing sin. There it is. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of God's laws. Let that just sit in your spirit for a minute. Because we have a tendency to say, oh, well, I am not as bad as so-and-so. Or I didn't do this like this person. If you've broken one, you're as guilty as the one who breaks them all. And so then he goes on to say, For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you still have broken the law. Verse 12 and 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. Heavy, heavy passages of scripture for 13 verses. Difficult to hear, difficult to preach. We're going to bring some levity to some of it because I like heavy messages, but I like engaging with them and relating to them and, and, and making them practical as well for, for our walk with Christ. So today we're going to jump right in. You have a, a, a fill-in-the-blank sheet. Hopefully you can see it okay. And there are some blanks there that you get to fill in to keep track of what we're doing. I have them on my page so that I keep track of what I'm doing, and everybody wants me to do that because if I lose track, there's no telling what, what might happen or what I actually might say. That's why notes are so important to me. So number one, the very first thing that we're going to grab from this entire passage of scripture that I just read, all 13 verses, one theme that you can find in this is simply do life from the inside out. That's the first, that should be the first blank on your, on your sheet, do life from the inside out. And to model that a little bit, I'm going to use the story of a young man named David and, and his encounter with the prophet Samuel. And so if you look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 7, I'm just going to share this one verse. We, we know the, the story of this, of, of this verse. We know that, that the people of Israel needed a king, so they brought in Saul, who was like the kingly looking man. He was strapping, he was young, he was muscular, he was good looking, he was all the things that people thought a king should be, and of course he's taking the nation of Israel in a very, very bad direction. And so it's time for a new king. The prophet Samuel is told by God to go to the house of Jesse and say, you will find a king there and you will anoint him to be king. So he goes and pro the prophet Samuel does the same thing that all the rest of Israel did. He looks at the first son and says, well, obvious this has got to be the one. He's young, he's strapping, he's strong, he looks kingly, this has got to be the one. And then we pick up 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse number 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Powerful state message there, because the rest of the story goes that they marched every single son in front of the prophet Samuel, and all he heard was no. No, 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 no. And then he said, is this it? 
And David was thought of in such a way that he was not even invited by his own father to the house to see the prophet. Oh, well, he's just the ratty little shepherd boy. Why would he even be in line to possibly be king? He's out tending to the sheep. He's dirty. He's smelly. He's just a kid. So why would we ever bring him to see the prophet? So the prophet told him, well, go get him. He said, we won't even eat until he's here. Now that sounds like it's not that big of a deal, but it was a process to go into the field to get the shepherd, bring him back to the house because he couldn't just come in. See, in in our society, in our day, mom calls you in for dinner, you just come running into the house for dinner and you have to be told to wash up because you're not thinking about washing up, you're thinking about filling your belly. So that's what we do. We come in. We don't even think about washing up or cleaning up. But it was custom in the Jewish society that you could not even walk to the table in the vicinity of the table without being clean. So there was the process of going to pick him up out of the field. And no, they did not have Uber and they did not have cars. They would walk pretty much everywhere they went. The occasional camel if they had wealth. And so they went out into the field. They had to bring him in, but they couldn't just abandon the sheep. They had to have a plan for the sheep. So notice this takes a time and a process to bring David to the, to, the, to the prophet. And there's no food being eaten during this time. Nothing. We will not eat until I have seen him. So they go through this process. In he comes. We know the story. God tells Samuel, this is the one. He anoints David, king of Israel. And so here's the problem that Samuel made. In the beginning, the problem that Israel made with Saul, and honestly, the problem that we make, the problem that we have, and the thing that we do every day of our lives. Every day of our lives, we look from the outside in. Although the scripture clearly tells us that people judge on outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, we have a tendency to look at what's outward rather than what's inward. We think that because what we see on the outside means that there's got to be something dirty and junky on the inside. If we don't agree with someone's lifestyle on the outside, that means something on the inside is a mess. And it very well is, but the problem is we're casting judgment upon that person and to the point of James deciding where they can sit in our lives and where they can sit even in the church. I remember this very clearly when I was, uh, when I was younger in my faith, and there was, there was a, um, a man who came into our church in Baltimore, and, and it came into our church, big church, 15, 1,600 people, beautiful, big auditorium, and this man comes walking down the center aisle and goes to the second row on the right side, and trust me, some folks, the, the, the pastor was not this way, but the pastor can't always control how the people think although they think they do think people think oh well this is how the person thinks that a pastor must think that way and that's really not the case at all um you were all you are all individuals and 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 the 45 minutes a week that i get to speak into your lives doesn't do a whole lot to change that individual it's what you do is what's spoken into your life that ultimately changes you but there was this this air of anybody who sat on the front row of that section was like important I mean, that's where the pastor would sit before he preached. That's where the, the, the pastor emeritus is, is, would sit, is also the, the retired pastor, the father of the original father of that house would sit and his wife. Any guest speaker would sit on that front row. Any guest musician would sit right there. And I, I mean, that was like the, the row of honor. And in walks this man. He sits in the second row. 
right behind these folks. But see, that sounds like, oh, that's no big deal. He was dressed like a woman. And this is what you could see and hear. And, and you could actually hear this because I sit in the third row on the opposite side of the, the aisle. You could hear, what's that person doing here? And in my mind, I'm thinking, what are you doing here? Because if I could not possibly be in a building or a church or anywhere that would suggest that because this person walked down, a man wearing a dress and dressed as a woman, that he was not welcome into the house of God. That to me just, I can't fathom that concept or that idea. Unfortunately, that happens across the nation in churches today. Now, there's an issue there. There's a sin issue there that has to be dealt with, and there's a deeper-rooted issue there that has to be dealt with, but by no means should this person who walks in the building ever feel like they're not welcome. But that's what we do because we look at the outside. We treat people differently because of what they have achieved. It's, it's the church. If I paraded one of my favorite speakers, one of my favorite preachers, because he is probably one of the most impressive orators of God's word that I've ever heard, it's almost, I catch myself very, very oftentimes like, okay, I got to bring it down because I might be putting him too much on a pedestal, but then I get jealous of him at the same time because he's younger than me and he's a brilliant preacher. And so this, this man's name is Stephen Furtick. And he has such insight in some of God's word that I'm just like, wow. I don't always agree with everything he says, but a good bit of it, I'm like, man, this guy can preach. But because he, if he, any church he would walk into, people would fawn over this man because of his gift. And that's what we do. We look at people who are talented, who've achieved a lot. They have a great title. And all of a sudden it's like, man, man, this guy is special. Just look at him. Look at what he's accomplished. You know, whether he has got, and, and then we look at the same thing when it comes to Major League Baseball players, professional football players, NBA basketball players. You could meet just the run-of-the-mill seventh, eighth man off the bench and be like, oh, that's cool, he's a basketball player. But if you met LeBron James or you met Michael Jordan or you met Kobe Bryant or you met anyone else who's got accolades, you'd be like, wow, it's LeBron James. Dude, I met the man, not nice. Don't worship somebody who, just because he got something, he's not a nice man. I met him once. The only person on his team wouldn't autograph, autograph, give an autograph. So, and that's not, I'm not judging him by that, but I'm just saying, he wasn't nice in that context, but we will look at him because he's accomplished so much that he's got to be great. Bottom line is we look on the outside of everyone, how they dress, what color their skin is, how clean they are, what do they smell like, all these things. We look at these things. The biggest one today that's, that's plaguing our nation is the way someone, the, the appearance of someone. And when I say the appearance, I, I mean the cultural appearance of someone. Because they're black or because they're Hispanic or because they're white, we, we, don't, we don't embrace them, we don't like them. This is, this is an issue in our society and to say it's not is, a big, is even a bigger problem. But the reality is in order for us to truly walk out faith from the inside out, Something like racism has to die. It has to die. Here's the problem. As much as I love Jesus and as much as I want to see the glory of God on this earth, I'm sorry to say racism will likely never die. It's the condition of a broken world. And the world would be broken until what? Until Christ comes back. 
So while we can make strides and while we can do everything that we can do personally to bring unity in the body of Christ and unity to our nation, it's still going to be broken. But that doesn't mean you don't try. That doesn't mean you don't work. You don't devote yourself to those things. Those things, the way we look at people on the outside, must die if we are to have true faith that is see-through, true faith that is from living life from the inside out. But see, I'm going to help you for a minute because one of the things that people have to say very often is they act a certain way, but then they say, but God knows my heart. And I, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I have both participated in and overheard where I've heard someone say, can you believe so-and-so did this or so-and-so's child this or so-and-so's brother this? Oh, but I'm not one to gossip. The Lord knows my heart. <laughs> Woo, I was just in a conversation. I was in, and it's like a slow motion train wreck for me. I'm like, I see the train coming. I just can't do anything to stop it. And I'm like, Lord, please. Can, I, I often, this is how I pray, just so you know. I'm in a conversation, not with you. Well, no, not with you. Not most of you. I don't think I have anyway. But I'm in the middle of this conversation. I'm like, Lord, please do me a favor. Would you just hush her lips? I just don't want to hear anymore because it's making my ears bleed right now. That's dramatic, I know. But that's, that's how I pray sometimes because some of the stuff that I hear come out of good Christian people's mouths. It's like, are you serious? Oh, but I'm not one to gossip. No, you just did gossip. But the Lord knows my heart. Yes, he does. And what did he say? He said it's deceitful and wicked. And you know what? Because of what you're saying and doing, so does the person who you're talking to know that your heart is deceitful and wicked. It's really easy. I don't have to be judgmental to actually see fruit of someone's life. If they come up to me and they're gossiping about someone else, guess what? That's their heart. That's what's in there. But they say, they, so, so let, me, let me help you out with a couple of quick little things. Remember that thought right there. Remember what he said about your heart being deceitful and wicked when you go around judging folks or gossiping or not loving your spouse the way they deserve to be loved or flirting with your neighbor because, oh, it's convenient. Or talking about everyone is doing everything wrong and you have the right way. That's sin, by the way, just so you know. That's something I had had to re I've had to repent to for because I believed wholeheartedly, man, I have all the answers. My way is the right way. And if you do it any other way, man, you're just wrong. That sounds horrible and arrogant, right? That was my sin. Just being real. And so we, we get to this place and we talk this way, we act this way, we talk about how, and this is, this is going to rub some folks the wrong way, we talk about how this politician is evil, but this one is good. And we talk about how this politician, all their decisions are all wrong, but this one, they're all right. Let me tell you, help you out real quick. They all suck. Yeah, you guys don't want the pastor to say those kinds of things. I get it, and that's all I'll say politically, but they all all means all in every language. All suck. I, don't, I, I just, I'm sorry I get off that soapbox because I'll, I don't like any of them. None of them have God in God's intentions in mind. None of them. They all say they do, but not one of them do. And that's, that's, that sounds like judgment. You're right, it is. Based on what I see. Based on the condition of our nation today. So, but don't talk about how this one's good and that one's bad and this one, and don't, I don't like him because of his choice and decisions. And you know what you're supposed to do? Pray for that person. I had somebody once say, oh, well, I'm praying for him to be impeached. Yeah, you're not, you, your prayers are not effective. The Bible tells you the prayers of the righteous are effective, right? The prayers of the righteous availeth much. Not your personal grudging prayer, not your personal I want what I want prayer. That's not getting anything done. 
I know this is harsh. Pastor's jamming you and you don't like it. That's okay if you're visiting here. Welcome to Relevant Faith Church. (laughs) That's all I got to say. You know, because we follow up all these thoughts and ideas with, oh, well, God knows my heart. Well, the desire of your heart should be to live inside out. That if what I say and what I do should be reflective of my Father, that's the, way I, that's the only way I know how to live. It's also why I offend people. Because I'm, I'm just me. I'm just real. I don't try to hide it. And sometimes me being me is offensive. And if you think sometimes you being you isn't offensive, let me tell you that it is. And that's okay. It's being, it's being real. It's doing life with real people. And that's what God desires. That's what James is talking about. In no way, shape, or form is he suggesting in these first 13 verses that you should be perfect. He says you just should be real. You should just be who you are. Man, I talk to people all the time who are so sweet and kind to my face. And then they think because they, they didn't say it to my face that I haven't heard it. And they say some pretty horrendously awful things about me. That's okay. That's their prerogative. Got no problem with it. That's between them and God. They got, he's got, they got a, a stand up for that. But the reality is God does know your heart. And your heart is deceitful and your heart is wicked. But a heart that's turned to Jesus can be redeemed from being deceitful and wicked. But it will always lead you astray. Your heart will always lead you astray. That's why I tell people all the time, you cannot ever make decisions based on what you feel. You have to base, make a decision based on what you know. Because sometimes I'm just not feeling God. Can I say that? Can the pastor of the church say I can't? I'm, sometimes I'm just not feeling God? Because sometimes I'm not. But my decisions are based on what I know, not what I feel. Because what I feel comes from here, and here can lie to me. Here can deceive me. Here can lead me astray. Man, there's pop songs that the heart wants what it wants. Yes, it does want what it wants. And usually what it wants isn't Jesus. Because that's, a, that's an intentional decision that you make yourself. And so look at what happens after David is anointed king. So he's anointed the king. See, here's what we do. We take this outside and we say, well, I don't like what that pastor looks like. Or I don't like what he says. I don't like what she says. I don't like what they do. So I'm going to live my own life in my own little box. And that's how I'm going to say, and I'm going to stay away from all those folks. But what did David do as an example? When he was anointed king, he went and served Saul. He went and served Saul. And in what capacity? His very first capacity of serving Saul was that of a harpist. Saul was tormented by a spirit. Tormented by a spirit. It wasn't just some random thing that he was, had issues with. He was tormented by a spirit, and David would play the harp, and it would soothe the tormenting that he was facing. That was David's first. David's first ministry assignment in the history of his life, outside of taking care of his sheep and his family, was to Play the harp for a man tormented by a spirit. How many would like that job? Let me go hang out with a man tormented by a spirit. Yeah, that's that's the kind of job I want. And then he would find favor because he was so good and so anointed and so blessed. He'd find favor with the king. And he would say to his father, Jesse, hey, I want your son to serve me continuously from now on. And of course, the king gets what he wants, so he gets David. And God sets him up in the court of Saul, the leader tormented by the Spirit. People today don't want to serve a leader who believes something they, dis- that they don't believe. 
or thinks a little bit differently or has a different philosophy of life or ministry. Oh, I don't want to be, I got to go over here and do this. Or the worst case, I got to just go and do my own thing because I, I don't like any of this. But David was positioned under a man tormented by a spirit. He would serve this king even when he tried to kill him. Man, I could preach a little too harsh and someone doesn't want to be here. David served a man who tried to kill him. As a matter of fact, he showed him how much he honored him by when this whole process was going on. He only cut the little piece of Saul's garment. Not, and this is David's sin. He even repented for that. But it was to say, I did this just to show you how much I honor you and, don't, and I could have killed you, but I didn't kill you. And then he said, oh my God, please forgive me because that in itself was sin. Man, 1 Samuel chapter 16, let's wrap up this thought real quick. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 18 through 23, he says, One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem was the talented heart player. That's the story I was telling you about. He said, send me your son, verse number 19, David, to the, the, shep the shepherd. Jesse responded, sending David to Saul. He played the harp, verse 22. Then Saul sent word to Jesse asking, please let David remain in my service. And whenever the tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp. And Saul would feel better. And the tormenting spirit would go away. Why, that, let me tell you what's really cool about that. The reason it went away was not because of his talent on his instrument, but it was his anointing on that instrument and on his talent and the call of God on his life to bring peace. Because a man in himself can't bring peace. His talent in himself can't be priest. But when there's the anointing of God attached to the gift of God, it will bring peace wherever it goes. And so if you look at certain people, and, you, and I'm not talking about judging folks from the outside, but if you look at some folks and you see that all they do is bring turmoil and drama everywhere they go, good chance that's all their flesh doing what they want to do. And you should look at that as a guard to say, oh, maybe I not, should not engage fully in this relationship because that's what they bring David brought the anointing of God, not just a talented heart player, but the anointing. And he say that's, and I'm going to brag for a moment on my worship pastor because he's phenomenal. That's one of the things I love about him more than anything else is not his talent or his ability, but he carries an anointing to lead worship like almost one I've never seen in my life. And it's because of the call of God, but connected to the lifestyle that that person called lives. Let me get off of that. Let's go to number two. So we need to do life inside out. Number two, we need to do life upside down. That don't make any sense, I know. Do life upside down. Mark chapter 9, verse 35, the Bible says, He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Whoever wants to be first must take last place and be a servant of everyone else. Why did I say do life upside down? Because it makes no sense to be willingly take last place over first place. I'm a very competitive person and don't like to lose ever. I don't. It used to be so bad that I would quit before I would lose. Because in my mind, quitting didn't mean I lose. I just decided to stop playing. So I can't lose when I decide to stop playing. Yeah, it's a messed up thought process, I know. 
But that's what, what I did. So Because it makes no sense to say, well, I'm going to choose to be last and let everyone else be first. He said this in the midst of these two disciples arguing over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus like, well, let me rock your boat a little bit. Whoever chooses to be last is really going to be first. So we have to do life upside down. Why is that considered upside down? Because today we always talk about being first. Technology rush is all about the first to do this, the first to do that. Who's the first to bring out live video footage on, on the internet? Who's the first to bring this out? Who's the first to do this? Who's the winner of everything has a winner, everything has a loser, and who's the first to be the one? That's the society we live in. It's all about first. It's not about, it's not about what's right. It's not about unity. It's not about anything. It's about first. Who was first? And then it's all about, look at me. Look at my talent. Look at my skill. It's all about me. Check it out. And then when it's not about you, it's, well, why am I not being recognized? Ooh, let me tell you. One of the things I, as a pastor and I've been doing this for a lot of years now. One of the things missing in the church today is the man, the young man, the young woman willing to be last, to grow, willing to be last, to learn. Instead, we've got a generation of young men and women who at whatever age they make this decision, I've seen it as early as 1920, I've seen it as late as early 30s, I know what I'm doing, I don't need... Someone else teaching me or telling me how to do it. Okay, cool. Have fun. Enjoy. Let me tell you what they always do. Every last situation that I have been in so far, with the exceptions of one that are currently in those situations, they always come back. Say, hey, I need your help. I need your advice. Why? Because there's wisdom. The Bible even tells us to seek wise counsel through things that we do, decisions that we make. That's, not, that's upside down because it's, it's about me. Why am I not being? When will it be my turn? Woohoo! I asked that question once. Just once. Because it was like, man, when is it going to be my turn? You know, I've been serving this ministry faithfully. I've been doing it for no money. I've da 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 Every excuse that everyone ever has. When is it going to be my turn? Man, God had to deliver me from that. Paul even talked about it in Philippians chapter 2. He said, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself to, in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. His humility and his obedience brought him to death. It says, therefore, God elevated him to the place of the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue shall declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why? Because he submitted himself and humbled himself. The Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh form, humbled himself, kneeled before his own Father and said, I am here to do what you have called me to do. 
humbled himself in obedience even unto death. Knowing what he was going to suffer and face, he still humbled himself to walk it out. Let's not forget the word Christian means to be like Christ. We forget that. We just want to shout that I'm a Christian, but we don't want to be anything like Christ. I'm a Christian, but I want to judge you for what you, how you live. I'm a Christian, but I want, to, I want what I want when I want it. I'm a Christian, but when is it going to be my turn? I'm a Christian, but I want to be first. I'm a Christian, but I never want to be last. But I'm a Christian, but I don't want to die. I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be obedient. To be like Christ means to be obedient even unto death. So we need to live a life that's inside out. We need to live a life that's upside down. Number three, you need to live a life that's right side up. And that sounds crazy. Like, how am I going to live upside down and right side up all at the same time? James chapter 2, the last two verses that we shared a few minutes ago. Whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have shown no, shown, who've not shown mercy to others. But if you, get, if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. We flip out over being judged by other people. I've had council conversations, preaching conversations, whatever, in any context, when I've preached the word of God and righteousness, I've been hit back with, well, what you said, I, I've gotten emails, Facebook messages, well, what you said today, pastor, was judgmental. No, it was the word of God. It wasn't judgmental, it was God's word. And we're worried about being judged by one another. When there's a judgment that will come that is far more stressful and painful than you judging me. So I, I don't worry about, so here, let me help you set you free for a minute. Stop worrying about other people judging you because there's a judge whose judgment really matters. Because other people who judge you, somebody who comes in and says, well, I don't like your preaching. Cool, well, I will send you to a church where you might like his preaching or her preaching. Well, I don't like your worship. Well, cool, I'll send you to a church that has worship that you might like. Well, I don't like, keep it going. I, that's okay, I'll send you. You don't have to like anything about me because that's not why I'm here. There's a God who will judge what I do. And as a preacher of the gospel, I will stand in judgment a little bit harsher than most because I have a microphone and I have people listening to me. And so I'll be standing in judgment for every word that I've ever preached. And so I'm not really worried about you judging me. Judge away. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. I do a lot and say a lot. They give you some plenty of ammunition. So enjoy it. But to live right side up, To live right side up means our talk and our walk need to match. Our talk and our walk need to match. Don't be so concerned with judgment of men and somehow think that the judgment that men give me will be worse than the judgment of God. Don't. I would submit to you that we should be much, in much more awe and respect and fear of the judgment of God. Not a fear, scared fear, but an awe and respect fear of the judgment of God than we have of you and me. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 says, you may, may, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad and have no excuse when you say they are wicked and should be punished. You are condemning yourself for you who judge others do, this, do these very same things. Let me, let me take this to a level that's, that's going to, to rattle you a little bit, and it does me. We look at the pedophile and say... Some pretty horrendous things about what people should do to them. I've heard a lot. I've heard it in the church and out of the church. And don't get me wrong. That's evil. 
It's, dis- it's, it's, ba- it's bad, disgusting, and all anything else you want to say. But you want to know something? That person's sin, no different from your sin. You judging that person, you being greedy, you being disobedient, no difference from that. And that's not popular. That's not popular preaching at all. But that's the reality of the truth. And Paul said it in Romans. James said it in James. And Jesus said it in his own teaching. So let me move on real quick because I'm running out of time. So there's a plan. So we live inside out. We live upside down. We live right side up. And there's a plan of how to accomplish this. Here's the blueprint plan. You ready? Number one, let the scripture become your standard. Let the scripture become your standard. I'm not going to follow culture. I'm going to follow Christ. I'm not going to follow society just because they have said something's okay. It's, if it's not biblically okay, I'm not going to follow it. That being said, I'm going to love it. I'm going to love the individual. I'm going to pour out grace and mercy. I'm not going to be like, oh, well, you know what? When you clean yourself up, then you can come hang out with me because, you know, I'm just all that. Uh-uh. I did, God didn't say clean yourself up and come hang out with me. He said, come to me. I'll clean you up. It's my job to fish for men. It's his job to clean them. That's the bottom line. Take that approach in your thought process. It's your job to fish, his job to clean. We want to clean. We don't want to fish. We get it twisted and get it backwards. It's our job to fish. We don't want to fish because it's working. I don't want to work. I'd rather be lazy. I'd rather sit on my butt, accomplish nothing, and just let them come to me, and I'll clean them when they're here. Why the American church is dying today. Because that's the mentality. Let them come to me, and I'll clean them once they get here. But the problem is most of the people doing the cleaning are pretty unclean themselves. Having a difficulty doing unclean can't clean clean. Clean unclean. Yeah. Unclean cannot clean unclean. (laughs) Let the scripture become your standard. My favorite verse in that, Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, the message version. Here's why I love the message version. Here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Understand that first thing. You cannot do this. God has to help you. You cannot live inside out, upside down, and right side up all at the same time. God has to help you. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. That means all of you and everything you do. And place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well. I love this part. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. I'm going to tell you right now, if everybody you talk to and everybody you engage with loves you and everything you think, get away from them. Because you're not actually reaching God's people. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed. Here it is from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you. Quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-informed maturity in you. I love that version and that passage. So let the scripture become your standard. Number two, let love become your law. Let the scripture become our standard. Number two, let love become our law. Romans chapter 15, verse 7, therefore accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. Let love become the law. 
Just because you love someone does not mean you have to agree with someone. If that was the case, you would none of, nobody in this room would ever be married. This woman is the love of my life. She is absolutely the better half. She's smarter than me. She's more talented than me. I don't like a bunch of things that she does, but I love her. I don't agree with a lot of things that she says, but I love her. And we have these conversations in our house about what we agree with and don't agree with. We're both very, very stubborn, vocal people. Don't listen to her. She is. Things she don't like about me, she lets me know. Not always. No, I'm going to move on from that. <laughs> Let love become our law. Accept one another. Welcome one another. Don't confuse this acceptance with approval. There's a whole lot of folks that I accept into my life and love them as if they're my own that I don't approve of. I don't even approve of my own sometimes. If you have a 15-year-old child, you know this. Or you've ever had a 15-year-old child, you know this. You don't approve of what a 15-year-old does and says all the time. But it's love has become my law. Except in this context, in this word, when it says, therefore, accept each other, this word literally means to take as a companion. Does not say anything about agreeing with them. It does not say anything about anything except taking them as a companion. So when someone suggests to me, well, I have to love them, but I don't have to like them, that's crap. Because you're not going to take a companion of anybody that you don't like. I don't even, there, there are times that I'm like driving Uber, I'm like, oh, I remember this dude. Man, I don't want to drive this guy. Can I just turn Uber off real quick? Deny that request? I'm, I'm, I'm being real. But that's not letting love become my law. Number three and last. Worship team, come and get set, please, if you would. Let me just, while they're coming and sitting, let me tell you a couple of things that love becoming law looks like. Welcome, them into, welcome someone into your home. How you gonna do that, Sean? Just go back there behind your guitar. Welcome them into your welcome them into your home. Who's them? Anyone? Everyone. Cook them a meal. That's one of the things that drives my wife nuts about me. I'll welcome the world into my house. And she loves it, don't get me wrong, but she's like, oh my goodness. More people. More people in the house. T kids especially. Oh, you've gotten a ton better. Kids especially. She'd come home from work sometimes. Like eight kids in the house. Like, what are you doing? I don't care. I ain't paying them no attention anyway. They're wrecking the house. I don't care. Just don't eat all my food. It'll be all right. <laughs> but welcome one another into your home. Walk with each other through life. You can love the individual who's in sin and hate the sin at the same time. That's what marriage is. That's why, that's why Christ is always referring to the body of Christ as the bride. Because he loves us while we are yet still sinners. Not because we were sinners, but while we are yet still sinners, Christ loves us and died for us. So it does not matter in one bit the condition of your heart, nor your life, nor your choices as to whether God loves you or not. Not one bit. 
He loves you just where you are. But the cool thing about him and what I, one of the things I love most about Jesus is he loves me too much to leave me there. He loves me too much to leave me where I was. Last is this. Kind of goes with number two, the last part of our blueprint plan. Let compassion be your message. Let compassion be your message. If all you're ever preaching is the judgment of Christ, then all you're ever going to be have is a bunch of scared believers. And I, that was me in my early days. I used to, I worked at 84 Lumber Company when I got saved. And I, oh, I was a salesman. All my customers were construction, and the construction industries are a little rough. And I used to tell them all, man, you need to give your life to Jesus. You're going to hell, bro. You're going to burn for eternity. It's going to be painful. You don't want that? Come on, let me give you some Jesus. Let me tell you something. That message is not very effective. I scare some folks probably into salvation, but probably just momentary salvation, not necessarily anything that lasted. Fear should not be a motivator. Let compassion be our message. Luke chapter 6. Jesus said in verse 36, Jesus said, you must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. What's that mean? Gotta let people off the hook. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they did. Oh, what you don't understand. This person, they hurt you. Yeah, you know what? I don't care. Gotta let them off the hook. Let them off the hook. Forgive them. Because let me tell you something, holding in unforgiveness, harboring unforgiveness towards any other person is like literally you drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. It's foolish. And the only person it hurts is you. Anybody who I've ever offended, who I've ever hurted, I, I've hurt it. Hurt. <laughs> Sounded like my daughter that time. Anybody who I'm, whom I've ever offended or whom I've ever hurt, my greatest desire is to repent and ask forgiveness for my offense. But if I don't know that there's an offense, but you're offended and you're not forgiving me, can I just tell you something? I sleep well at night. You're not bothering me. But if I've hurt you, you've got to let me know and we got to walk through this or you just got to let it go. One or the other, that's when it comes to me and my offense, I take a Matthew chapter 18 approach as often as all the time. But my first step is first to pray because most of my offense I've come to realize are my own issues. Not that you offended me, but that I was offended because I have some insecurity, I have some brokenness, I have this, I have that. So I pray first and God, forget, God help me work through this. And if at the end of my time praying I still can't get past it, then I've got to come to you and say, hey, listen, what you said, and it hurt Because that's, that's, that's the Jesus process. That's the Jesus process to the, all of this. So live your life inside out. Live your life upside down. Don't desire to be first. Be last. Be the servant. Because that's what Jesus is. That's who he was. He came to serve, not to be served. Live your life right side up, meaning live your life right for God. Seek righteousness. Let the, let the word 
the scripture be your standard, not society. Let love be your law. Let compassion be your message.